0: AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com.
1: Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for January 3rd, 2017. Uh, Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Uh, Today, joined on the program uh, via webcam, we have Mike Klepper with our AT&T Consulting Service, uh, a a new frequent contributor to our program. I think it's a few times you've been on now. Uh, Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you. Uh, How was your your holiday and new year? Everything went great? Awesome.
2: Awesome. Got some sun, got some fun. Now I'm back at work ready to... Get uh, going
1: again. So, all right. all right, sounds good. And joining me on the couch is Matt Kaiser, one of our ATT security analysts. How you doing, Matt? Doing great. All right, good. And also Manny Ortiz. Well, you don't
3: care how I did. It. Well, I know how your
1: your uh, <laughs> New Year's <laughs> went and your vacation because we already had lunch together. So, um, and also on the couch with me is Manny Ortiz. Happy um, New Year. How's it going? Not bad. Thanks for being here. And I'm John Hogaboom, of course. And so let's just jump right to the show because um, I'm not one for. All these socialists what? talk about how our vacation was uh, more interested in security and IT stuff so the first story uh, that we're looking at Manny is one that are one that you were looking at Manny about a new piece of ransomware popcorn time
0: yeah so this uh, this one actually um, <clears throat> came about like somewhere around mid-december um, and uh, it actually started off a little bit and they dubbed it popcorn time and and I think you probably some of us know exactly why they picked "Popcorn Time" as a as the the name of the ransomware because it's a popular what we call, movie, it, a s- call it a movie streaming. It's oh. a it's a pirate service. Exactly, it's a pirate it's, movie. It's stuff. very well known for
3: being able to get content for okay. free.
0: Right, so a very popular, so obviously enticing for people to download and find. And it was originally released like sometime back in like I said early December, mid December but when it was first looked at, it was kind of -of run-of-the-mill ransomware. There wasn't anything really spectacular about it. It did basically what ransomware did. And it wasn't until the second release of it that they had added a couple of little you know nuances to it that made it interesting. It basically goes in and it encrypts your, you know, your um, your my docs, your MyPix, my pics, my music, um, and anything that you had on your desktop. It would basically encrypt the files and then um, rename them to um, the lock f i lock you know dot fi lock. You know, in typical fashion, it would ask for one Bitcoin which at the time was about 750 bucks. But if mm. you've been watching, so um, good, it? It, it has skyrocketed. So as of oh, beginning really? of Bitcoin's January, it's up. over $1,000 for a Bitcoin now. I start investing in this stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it's gotten quite expensive. Um, and then there was a couple of things that they had noticed about the ransomware. So a couple of things. So when the ransomware was launched, there was a couple of uh, files that were put on your desktop. Uh, an HTML, uh, HTML file and a, and a text file. The text file had some basically a description of what had just happened on your machine um, and kind of why it had happened which was interesting. So if you read through the, the article it shows that um, they say that they are a, a bunch of students, uh, computer science students from Syria
1: this, the, is in this, HTML, this is in this text, is in file, this text,
0: that text they file. file, right? It's in the, in the text file. The so HTML file providing actually, their own attribution. Exactly. The HTML file was seems to actually be a mistake to put on it because the HTML file actually has text within it that says something about the payment being received. So it looks like it was a mistake. Mm-hmm. Like that is what they use after you've actually submitted the payment. But oh, the text right. file says that they are computer science students in Syria. And that the reason why they're doing this is because their country, you know, blah blah blah. They've, you know, had a lot of people die in the in you know in the recent past, and this is the only way for them to help themselves and their country. Uh, they need to to buy. I think they said that they needed to buy food and supplies and stuff. So they, it was a heartwarming story about why they needed to do this and why they your needed your computer to- exactly <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and why they needed, they needed your money they needed your money.
2: That was kind of one of the most interesting parts about this uh, when I was looking at this is that um, aside from the um, sort of humanitar- humanitarian plea that they were using to try and make you feel somewhat better about paying the fee, also because you gave they gave you the nasty way of getting out of the box the humanitarian plague could make people feel less guilty about passing on the infection in order to try and, you know, get out of paying the fee themselves. So right. I thought that was unique um, in in whether it's true or not. Uh, it was a unique attempt at social manipulation.
0: Right. Exactly. So, so Mike, Mike is explaining. So they had basically the, the sort of the nuance about this ransomware. Why it's you know it's more news than just your typical ransomware is because this nasty way that Mike is talking about was, you either paid, one Bitcoin, and they, unencrypted your files, or, you could opt to, they would give you. Basically a URL, and if you sent that URL and infected two other people that oh. paid, <laughs> wow. that paid, they would unencrypt your files for free.
3: What if they didn't? What if you didn't? They didn't pay. You're still. So it's like an affiliate program. So already. you had
0: to obviously you had to probably send it out to more than two people, right, to make sure that you got two people right, that actually paid, so that, that yours paid. would get unencrypted.
3: Interesting. No, no, it's not a ransomware scheme. It's multi-level marketing. Yeah, it's an, amazing, it's an amazing
2: application of a Ponzi scheme.
3: Right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Interesting. I don't think I've,
1: I don't recall seeing that tactic used before. That's nope. interesting.
0: Nope. So they basically give you, and, and supposedly, you know, th- there's a couple of screenshots here, but um, they, they give you, the link that they give you is somehow tied back to the ID that they give you when they first infect you. So technically, although it wasn't tested, there is a way for them to track if, I sent it to you guys and you guys clicked it and paid there would be a way to track it back to me to say oh that was that was the infection that i started and those payments will make mine free yeah
3: but right, let's right, be right. honest if you were to send it to both of us one you're a terrible boss <laughs> <laughs> <And> Two, <laughs> we would be terrible security professionals to click on that link
0: that's right so that's right you, you have right. to send it to more than so just you us. send it
3: to your relatives instead yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in this uh so the the further tests, so you know, further tests on this, it turns out that um the the guys that actually tested this found out that the that the cryptographic key to unlock your files was actually located within the malware executable. Nice. So they are oh, okay. actually able to unencrypt their files without sending in money. Right, so right. but that doesn't obviously as we all know here that doesn't the the next version of it, they will fix this and that, you know, and that won't be possible. But
1: somebody could probably make a standalone like recovery tool or something like a security research, you know, right. Good guy team. Yeah. Like antivirus, whatever might come out with something, at least for this. Uh, interesting. Yeah. This is interesting that they, um, that nasty way that you're talking about. I don't think I've recall seeing it. Yeah. It's very interesting. Uh, Well, I mean, we've talked about, I think, in the prediction show at the end of the year, talking about ransomware, probably expecting to see more of it. This actually came out in December, but uh, hopefully it's not a harbinger of more to come because ransomware is not, you know, malware is not fun to begin with, but ransomware is even worse. So, Um, Interesting. Okay. Uh, So let's move on to the next story. And this is one that you were looking at, Mike, about uh, kill disk malware.
2: Yeah, this is, uh, you know, an interesting, um, again, an interesting variant of ransomware. We've seen a lot of ransomware over 2016. As you mentioned, we're expecting to see more of this in 2017. Killdisk um, is sort of an evolution of a pre-existing malware package that previously would go through and delete a victim's hard drive. Uh, So it was a very destructive piece of malware that was used in cyber-sabotage-type operations, cyber-espionage operations. Um, primarily focusing in the industrial sector. Um, there's evidence of this being used in um, various areas both in the US and Eastern Europe uh, over the last couple of years. But recently they have evolved this and their operations to take advantage of you know the, what is on track or what was on track in 2016 to be the billion dollar a year ransomware industry, um, if you could term it that. And so now, rather than delete your disk and you know cause problems, um, Kill Disk is actually um, encrypting uh, the the systems, encrypting the disks as well as any mapped drives uh, of the systems that it infects, and it's demanding a very large encryption a decryption fee of 222 bitcoins. Um, so they are particularly targeting uh, the industrial sector um, at this point. Um, based on the the, the available information that's out there. And this is interesting because you're seeing ransomware start to push into that IoT space, uh, which isn't something that um, was terribly prevalent, That at least I came across in my studies uh, in the past year. It's an interesting evolution uh, of ransomware uh, as a whole, actually, because um, while banking and individual users and corporate users and things like that certainly have been uh, you know, juicy targets uh, for ransomware. In the latter half of this past year, we've started to see ransomware move into more sensitive uh, market verticals, like healthcare, for example. Right, if you start to mm-hmm. ransomware encrypt real-time um, operating, you know, or medical support services and things like that inside inside of hospital infrastructures and what have you, uh, there's a much more critical uh, impact of that. Right, when you start looking at IoT. In like the chemical manufacturing vertical or or the energy vertical Uh, these are environments that you know iot is that next bow wave right operational technology there's quite a few uh, uh, challenges there from a security perspective there's you know possibly fewer controls depending on the environment so it's easier to infect the impact for infection and encryption uh, is more pronounced and they have deeper pockets to pay Um, and so really Um, this has been, this evolution is very interesting in that regard that they're really kind of going after that vertical. Also, they combined this, uh, with a backdoor Trojan, uh, called from Telebots, uh, Telebots Backdoor Trojan, um, that is used to exfiltrate data also as part of this. So it's kind of a one-two punch. The, the ransomware is being used sort of as a feint. Um, to draw attention. It's really flashy, right? It's very obvious. It grabs attention. uh, Administrators may not notice uh, the backdoor Trojan that's dropped in there as well, um, depending upon how thorough their investigation is. And this allows for possibly ongoing uh, access to the environment post-infection, even after the the ransomware is, is cleaned up. Also, it could result in doxing, right? So for those environments that get infected have data downloaded it's encrypted but they refuse to pay depending on what that data is whether it's incriminating in some fashion or trade secret or may other have otherwise have some sort of significant impact you know the perpetrators can threaten to dock the organization release the information to the public to their thereby further you know in, encourage payment right and there was some uh, speculation in the industry about six months ago as to what we're going to see um, that kind of trend start to arise in the ransomware area and so this seems to be sort of uh, you know a reflection of that. And the encryption that it's using is, is pretty pretty thorough as well. It encrypts every file with its own AES key and then encrypts the AES keys with an RSA public key which you then get the decryption for uh, after you pay the fine. so pretty pretty interesting stuff um, from a number of perspectives uh, in that way. yeah.
1: So the Killdisk uh, malware, and actually this segues really well from the last story. I didn't actually read the story ahead of time. So interesting, another ransomware. And this is kind of an evolution because Disk is a lot of us familiar with. has been used in a lot of nation-state type espionage. It was definitely used, from what I remember, in the Ukraine um, power grid attack. It was deployed on those machines um, as part of that. Uh, But that was the version that just wiped the disk. Uh, So now, like you said, they're kind of saying, well, instead of just wiping it, hey, let's see if we can make a few extra bucks here. Um, The other thing I thought was interesting here that you brought up is uh, some of these verticals that they're moving into. So, you know, we've seen a lot of the consumer one-off type of victims of ransomware in the past, but I would say in 2016, we saw a lot of healthcare A lot of industries were being targeted specifically ones that couldn't afford to have downtime uh, and may not have the best you would think hospitals would have better um, would have better recovery procedures but case in point they may or may not or they may not practice those recovery procedures as well as they should Um, and i think we covered a story late last year about or just very recently about the san francisco municipal rail system that was also Uh, targeted, and now that actor was targeting a lot of other construction and business, like more, uh, like targets that were more uh, small enough that they would probably pay, but big enough that they would have the money to pay kind of thing, and they couldn't afford to uh, have downtime there. So, interesting that they're trying to pivot this here uh, into a ransomware tool as well.
0: It's no surprise that if, you know, I think Mike had mentioned earlier a, a figure of like a $1 billion industry, well, with a with a ransom of 222 Bitcoin. Yeah, doesn't that cool. right. doesn't seem that far. That's pretty steep, right? right? Really I, steep.
1: I can't do the math in my head, especially so after
0: the bump. So right, like, after the bump, it's, yeah, it's
1: like $222,000. <laughs> oh, oh, that's right. Yeah, I was thinking <laughs> 700 Yeah. That's, yeah, I, I don't know who's going to pay that, but um, interesting. Yeah. Uh, a little alarming too. So you know, like we said, the best thing anybody can do, even if you're just a regular user or a small business, is have good backup procedures for your um, for your corporate devices, um, and then exercise on some regular basis uh, mock recovery procedures. You know, not necessarily want to kill all your machines, but at least test out the process. Say, well, I'm going to recover these five machines from backup today. And we're going to see how it works out and see if it all goes through as expected. Um, Because otherwise, when you're in the thick of it and you're not practiced in it, it's going to take longer. And if you do kind of exercise your recovery processes, you're going to be better apt to uh, recover quicker um, and not have to deal with this kind of stuff. Hopefully, having good preparation can make ransomware uh, kind of a a, a moot point. But that's just my opinion. (laughs) So moving on to what you were looking at, Matt. So I guess over the uh, holiday break, you had some free time to watch some, some
3: uh, webcasts or seminars? Yep, so the Chaos Communication Congress usually runs between Christmas and New Year's every year in Germany. Mm-hmm. And one of the nice things about that, that conference is that they stream everything. Um, maybe not the, the little meetings in the hallways, but any of the talks right, right. are going to be streamed in both in, in either English or German with live translations, sometimes in French, uh, completely for free. So I usually make a point to set aside some time and watch a couple of the interesting talks. Uh, were. Do they
1: have them recorded so you can watch them they like absolute, now yep, still? Okay.
3: With subtitles and they, they oh, do a cool. lot of work after the fact to make it very accessible and they, they put in titles and make it very glossy. But if you just want to watch the streams, you could do that too. Mm -hmm. So I I wanted to just highlight a few of the talks I found interesting. I think most people should, if you're in this field and you're interested in learning a little bit more outside of your chosen area of expertise, there's at least one talk that that happened this year that you could find interesting. Uh, The ones that I thought were interesting, um, Claudio Guarnieri did one called Hacking the World and he came up with this idea called Security Without Borders. Almost like a Doctors Without Borders, Mm -hmm. knowing that they're... We've talked about the problems with small and medium-sized businesses who don't have the the manpower or the the resources to dedicate towards security. Well there are, you know, NGOs and, and other organizations and, and journalists and people who could use the same kind of protection who will never be able to afford that kind of, you know, expertise. So the idea is to pair up people who are white hats with people who have the need for, you know, decent security and have them work together. So it's sort of a social responsibility if you want to volunteer your time right, right. to help out somebody who has a real need for that security. And I thought that was an interesting idea. Um, second talk is uh, Radar Demystified by um, Pancake is the developer's name, but he's the guy who wrote the tool Radar. Mm-hmm. It's a command line environment a lot like IDA, uh, except it's free. It's right, got a nice yeah. community behind it. Yeah. And I've always wanted to learn it, um, but it's, it's a lot like learning vi at the yeah, same time i looked at it briefly it looks pretty powerful it looks but good very powerful but there's a pretty steep learning curve so this well, talk even ida pro
1: has a pretty
3: yeah, oh absolutely
1: significant yeah. learning curve to it as well
3: sure but. sure but at least you can click around and find things in menus if you don't know your keyboard shortcuts and radar you're kind of sunk right right but this talk talked a lot about the, the popular ones you need to know and then talked about the the community around it so other things you can try and load in plugins and stuff like that so that was kind of cool i probably gonna have to watch that at least two more times uh, but I think I'm going to get a lot out of it. Yeah, that sounds like a good one. Uh, Console Hacking 2016 is a group called Fail Overflow that's been very well known in game hacking. And one of their representatives was up on stage with the PlayStation 4. Managed to get it to not only run Linux, which is quite an achievement, uh, but also he, for fun he booted into Steam and started playing Portal 2 on the <laughs> stage. Which I thought that was hilarious. Uh, so that's a fun one that's, if you want to learn about the architecture of the PlayStation 4. Great place to learn it. Another game related one, I am a gamer. Um, the Ultimate Game Boy talk was very cool. Someone took apart, you know, and not just physically took apart, but showed the architecture of how the Game Boy worked, how the sound worked, how memory worked, how cartridges worked. If you ever want to see like the soup to nuts of a, a game console, this is the talk to look at. Um, and then the last one that I thought was neat, of course, of the ones I'm going to talk about here, there are so many that were cool. Uh, but lock picking in the iot was a talk about bluetooth enabled door locks things you can connect to with your phone and whether or not some of these some of the locks that were talked about aren't even very good locks in the first place like if they were designed primarily as an iot device without the thought of how do you design a proper lock
1: lock. was secondary Right. (laughs)
3: right so if i you know a little bit about lock picking you understand the idea of shimming a lock which is basically bypassing the whole key portion of a padlock by sticking a piece of metal up towards the top and twisting and pushing things out of the way. All the money you've spent on your fancy lock has been bypassed with a little piece of uh, metal from a, a tin can. Right, right. So there's both technical aspects of it. There's still lock, lock picking aspects of it. It's really fascinating talk about how we need to get both of those right in order for the, a smart lock to be functional. Right,
1: right. You can't be an expert in one and not the other. You yeah, need to, yeah that's absolutely. A, Look at both. Yeah, that's,
0: a, that's an interesting one. That's I'm not sure if we've had any lengthy discussions on this show. but you know, talking about, you know, obviously we're quickly moving into, you know, a full IOT world.
1: Yeah, especially home
0: automation is getting bigger and bigger. Right, and and companies that are popping out of the woodwork trying to do IOT, Mm -hmm. but are these companies IOT companies or are they companies that speci- specialize in the actual device themselves that they're making right right and so you need to know both exactly especially if you've
3: got something dangerous like you know if you've got a great IOT toaster that you can control and you can you know dial in the exact crispness of your bread <laughs> but if it burns your house <laughs> right, down exactly <laughs> you know we one's going to buy this thing
0: <laughs> right. right so right. it has
3: to be a proper toaster and a proper IOT device right, right. Yeah. yeah yeah
1: so the, those I would say if it was me and I was a company You know, you would think that some of the big vendors of locks would say, well, let's get some people that are really smart with security to come on board our company and help us, you know, design these things. And we'll do the lock part and they'll help us with the the security aspects have to make sure that all works out right. Uh, Interesting. Okay, cool. Yeah, so I would recommend people check that out. Uh, I'm definitely going to check out the radar one because, you know, I looked at it once and uh, maybe that'll be my 2017... Uh, We didn't talk about New
3: Year's resolutions, resolutions. Resolutions.
1: I forgot about that, but (laughs) that might be my New Year's resolution is to uh, do a little bit more of that, um, uh, malware reverse engineering and whatnot, because it's fun. Um, uh, So the last story, and this is kind of a segue into the internet weather, is there was some activity uh, towards the end of uh, December, and uh, the NTP community pool. So out there there's a pool of NTP servers. NTP is the network time protocol. This is how all of your computers kind of get their time synced so all the machines have the right and correct time. Um, And there's a global pool of these and you can also have sub-pools or whatever that sync to the time servers in your businesses and whatnot. But there is like a big community pool of some several thousand servers or something. And they noticed a big uptick in the um, NTP request traffic that was coming in. Uh, It was a pretty significant uptick. Their chart doesn't show it as well on this little graphic I'm showing here, or at least not in a way that I can understand. I'm going to show you our view of it from the AT&T backbone perspective in a second. But it was interesting that they did some research here. They looked at it. They determined that the traffic was coming primarily from U.S. networks, cable, cell phone providers, mobile providers like AT&T, Verizon, et cetera, as well as from DSL space, so other consumer type spaces. And then when they looked even closer, they realized, hey, it looks like a lot of mobile devices in general. You know, it could be a mobile device on a uh, home network going out and that's why you'd see the consumer cable and DSL type stuff. Um, when they actually figured it out fully they actually took a bunch of I, you know, Android devices and they're installing these apps and trying to figure out what the heck is happening here, where is this coming from? And they finally figured out it was an iOS and they did this quickly within a day or something. They were able to figure out that uh, on the iOS specific, uh, Apple iOS on the iPad and iPhone, um, Snapchat released a new version version 9.45 that had some kind of bug we'll call it that was trying to query the NTP servers more than it should or more of them than it should and um, Snapchat was notified they have fixed it they posted a fix to iTunes as of December 20th and the update was rolled out to everybody's phone if you haven't updated your if you use Snapchat I would say make sure that you've updated that so that you're not still running it Uh, it looks like, for the most part, things have quiesced back to normal again here, so that's a good thing. Uh, And this is actually the picture from the AT&T perspective. Um, And you can see, back around uh, December 14th, 15th, we went from probably about 100 100 million flows per hour, uh, as just kind of a rough order of magnitude, to peaks of over 600, 650 at points here in between. And then it has since gone down, although it is a little bit more still elevated than it had been, which might be, there's still a few devices out there. And when I say a few, it could be like several tens of thousands of them, uh, or even hundreds of thousands that still haven't updated themselves. But there was definitely a significant uh, ramping up of activity there. But it's since kind of gotten better, uh, at least to the point that it's not stressing out the NTP servers.
3: Did we ever get any information on what the bug was? They they go into a little detail. It's
1: it, it's actually up in the GitHub repository. They were able to they were able to find the source code that related to it, but um, I don't really know why it was doing that. I didn't see that um, expressly mentioned. Although Snapchat acknowledged that, yeah, we had a bug. It's fixed. I don't know if I want to call it a bug. They they said yes, this is responsible for this something and activity. Configuration. Yes, like and um, they addressed it pretty quickly, which is great. And uh, it's been since resolved. So, interesting though that, you know, uh, I think it was pretty good work from the community. Uh, the NTP community is really kind of an open community. It's not a closed private, there's not like a private entity running the NTP servers. So, and that's another thing about NTP. If you are somebody who's interested in that and you want to help uh, that project, you can go to. Uh, ntp.org, I think, and find out about how you get involved with um, maybe uh, sponsoring a server or providing servers to add to the global pool of NTP servers uh, so that there's more of them out there and it can be distributed more across the uh, internet. Uh, Better absorb any of these types of events that might occur. So anyway, uh, I thought that was an interesting one. So let's move on to the regular internet weather report. And um, there are a couple of interesting things that have cropped up in the past couple of weeks that we probably hadn't seen before. Or if we had, I've completely wiped it out of my brain over the two weeks that we were on vacation kind of here off and on. So uh, in terms of the most pro ports, not a surprise, 23TCP Telnet is at the top of the pool here. Um, However, this pie is smaller than it had been in the past. You know, we had seen periods where it was like 75% of all scanning activity. So it's definitely come down a bit, but it's definitely not gone away by any stretch of the imagination. And then there's this 23231 port that's being scanned a lot. This has come up. The change is no different than last week, but that's because this started to ramp up prior to last week, and we haven't really talked about it since then, but we'll see it in a chart in a second. 6789 TCP, this is actually another Telnet port. For the Dahua DVR system, it's they use that as their telnet port. as they, you know, security through obscurity. Well, it's not obscure enough. Somebody found it and uh, someone's scanning to try to brute force password guess into those. 22 TCP is SSH, that's pretty much always on the radar. 5358 TCP is an interesting and puzzly one that we're gonna take a much closer look at. And uh, 3389 TCP is uh, Remote Desktop Protocol. That's usually on the list, people looking to see if they can find uh, Remote Desktop Services running on Windows machines and brute force their way in. 1900 UDP is Simple Service Discovery Protocol. This is probably scanning and attempts to find open SSDP services that they can use as reflectors for uh, reflective denial-of-service attacks. 1911 TCP is... The Tritium Niagara something. AX? So, yeah, it's the, that home, well, no, it's a building automation. Sorry, it's a, one of those. Um, uh, HVAC? Uh, or uh, like it's not HVAC, but in any event, yeah, it's one of those so building automation before, type yeah. uh, uh, software packages. And this mostly, this 1911 TCP, for the most part, and all the scanning I've ever seen, has been researchers as opposed to bad guys looking for it. 80TCP uh, is web and then 21TCP is FTP. And there's lots of reasons that bad guys look for FTP. So this is the most sources program, which is indicative of botnet type activity because you've got a large number of sources doing the scanning at once. And I'm just gonna touch upon the ones that are uh, really, uh, which we've already talked about. Uh, all of these are pretty much on the, the port, uh, the probe scanning ones. 445 TCP is in there as well. This is a, probably a lot of latent config or other types of bots scanning for Windows file sharing type stuff. The 5358 is in here as well. And then down at the bottom is the 7547 TCP, which is... Oh TR069064. Yes, it's probably related to that, which Mariah was scanning for yep. as well. Most of these probably are Mirai or IoT based bots scanning for all of these ports um, in general. The ICMP ones are probably mostly related to backscatter where devices are trying to, you know, scan sources are trying to scan for something, but then the receiving thing saying, no, I'm not there, I'm not listening on this port. So you get a lot of these ICMP messages that also look like uh, scanning as well. So here's 23 TCP, like I said, it's not uh, gone by any stretch of the imagination, but it has come down a bit. So we're seeing about 200,000 scan sources per hour, where, you know, there were peaks back here where we we're like around 350 to 400 scan sources per hour. So it's maybe reduced. I'm not going to say it's in half, it's two thirds of where it was before, but it's still a significant number of devices out there scanning for this. Some of that might be because now they're scanning for some other types of ports okay. and they're not concentrating as much. Uh, effort on the telnet, the 23 TCP telnet scanning. So when we go to 23231, which I don't have any specific vendor, I, have, I wasn't able to find any specific vendor for this. Why they're scanning for this? However, the fact that 23 is in there, repeated twice, and we know that 2323 was one that is a telnet-based one. I'm going to assume that there must be some device out there that's on 23231 TCP that's telnet. That they use as their telnet service. These types of shapes that we're seeing here of this uh, sawtooth decay early on, back around the early December timeframe, these were much smaller amounts, around 10,000 scan sources per hour doing this. But around 1220, December 20th, it went up to about 70,000 scan sources per hour, which is pretty big. We're talking about 200,000 for 23 TCP. So this is probably Mirai or some other botnet composed of these IoT type devices like security camera DVRs, these uh, network test storage, home routers, all these little embedded devices that people expose on the internet that um, might have some sort of default password provisioned on them. That's easy to guess. 6789, this is actually the same actor set, I think, from what I was able to determine, that was doing the twenty-three-one TCP scanning. Looks like they're also doing 6789 TCP. They were doing this a little bit before, earlier than they had been doing the 23231 TCP. This is known to be a Telnet port for the Dahua security camera DVR. So they run a Telnet service on port 6789. Like I said, not necessarily the most obscure port to do it on, really there is no way to make something completely obscure uh, by just trying to hide it on uh, an unknown port because somebody will find it by just Port's getting the entire uh, IP address. But uh, anyway, so that's probably what's going on here. There's about 40,000 scansips per hour at peak here when they first started up. Sawtooth waveform again here with this decay is a good indication that there's some sort of botnet-like activity. Faster bots finish earlier, once they have better bandwidth. So ones that have slower bandwidth take longer to finish. That's why they kind of decay off uh, in that fashion. And uh, it seems to have kind of stayed at a steady state since about December 24th around 25 to 30,000 scan sources per hour. And then the last one here, which I thought was a little interesting because I'm not sure why they're scanning for this. So there's a, I don't really have a good answer here, but I did some looking around at who is involved in this. So first of all, 5358 TCP. The only thing I know that it's kind of semi-officially used as is the Web Services for Devices service. And I think that's a Windows service like Windows 7 or maybe Windows Vista and Windows 2008 or some older versions of Windows. And it's kind of like a port mapper type service. It's Mm -hmm. a layman's, if you're familiar with that. It's kind of similar to that in a way. Um, For Windows, uh, there was an exploit back in 2009 for it but I don't know that that's what's being targeted here because that was quite a while ago, eight years, seven, eight years ago. The distribution of sources is pretty global. There's a lot of them. I'd say about 7,000 scan sources I'm seeing in in about an hour. There's a lot of distribution around the world. However, there is a pretty decent concentration of them in Korea. Don't know why that is, although that the Korean ones appear to be these Max I.O. devices, which I'm not familiar with that vendor, but it looks like uh, that might be the case here. Uh, Another, again, another IoT embedded type device, basically some sort of wireless router uh, type device. Uh, There's a fair number of uh, P2P device, well, I should say, a fair number of these also appear to be running peer-to-peer software, uh, like BitTorrent, because they have uh, whatever distributed hash table type stuff going on there. So maybe this could be, this 5358 TCP could be related to Uh, BitTorrent, but maybe not. When I actually looked at some of these devices, um, and there's some other types of IoT devices in the mix too, but the Korean ones, which is a pretty decent, significant number of them, I'd say at least 20% of the 7,000 are in Korea, which is interesting. Um, They are these Max I.O. devices, which are not really well protected, and they also have, uh, I think we've talked about this before, on some other vendor devices, but they have under their web interface this system command, which is basically like a web shell backdoor. So through a web interface, I can run like ls-l or ps-a and see what's you know run command line uh, functions because there is no telnet open on these. So this is if it is infected, this is a way that some somebody could script something or manually infect it. Um, by using this type of functionality. it's an intended
3: feature of the device. It's an intended
1: feature of the administrative interface, but if you have a weak password, it's not good um, because then anybody can kind of interact with it, command line, just like you would with Telnet. Um, And from looking at it, I guess these, I'm not familiar with this vendor Max.io, but uh, uh, Peerster used the MediaTek MT7620 chipset, which is kind of like some all in one kind system of system on a chip, yeah, system on a chip kind of thing, uh, formerly known as RA Link. And uh, so, possibly there's something going on there, another type of IoT type of thing. Maybe these are getting scooped up and they're scanning for this 5358, but I'm not quite sure what they're going after in terms of the 5358 TCP part. Maybe we'll find out in I the mean, future. You
3: could technically, scan for 5358 as a way to weed out. Device to define the devices that you're looking for, right? With the knowledge, they'll also have other ports open. I think I did that on Shodan,
1: and I didn't see anything. On if Shodan, Shodan doesn't
3: that, scan for 5350, I think a, they did though.
1: There. Oh yeah. I think they only had a very small number of like hits, like less than a hundred. Interesting. But they may. Have I need that. to. I was looking at a lot of things with Shodan, so I'm not one hundred percent positive that I remember exactly what I was looking at. So that's probably something good to follow up on. Um, but anyway, maybe. We'll figure out more as the weeks go on here, or maybe it'll go away. Who knows? Just another example of, you know, embedded devices. People need to, vendors need to be a little more careful about um, distributing them with default passwords. So, uh, so that's the show for today. Uh, thank you for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack@list.att.com. You can also find the AT&T Threat Track program on the AT&T Tech channel. It's also available on YouTube and iTunes. Uh, please follow us on Twitter. Our handle on Twitter is at ATT Business. I'd like to thank you, Mike, for joining us this week. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Manny. Uh, I'm John Hogaboom. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe.
0: views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.